On Tisha B'Av, we sit on the floor, we think about our suffering, we read the Jewish history, and we read about the Crusades, the Inquisitions, the persecutions, the blood libels, the Holocaust, and we feel the pain, both our own pain, as well as 2,000 years of horrific, horrific exile. And I believe we all have an understanding. Each person has their version, their understanding as to what happened, why it happened, and specifically what Hashem's involvement in everything that happened was. And I'd like to share with you that I believe that most likely you're wrong. I believe that most people get it dead wrong in terms of what happened, why it happened, and more than anything, what Hashem's role was and is in this 2,000 years of exile. And I'd like to share with you today what I call the real story. And to begin that story, let's focus on one observation. We are a unique people. Holy, exalted, mamleches konim v'goy kadosh, we are unique amongst all the nations. But we're also a rather obstinate people, strong-willed, stubborn, am oref ata. And the simple reality is that when the Jewish people are up, there's no one like us. We rise to the heights. But it's not always that trajectory that we follow. And if you study Jewish history, you begin to put the pieces together and you see a very interesting pattern. Hashem took us out of Mitzrayim with tremendous fanfare. The entire world stood trembling, knowing the reality that Hashem created and runs the world. Three million people leaving, leading the, the dynasty of the generation, leaving en masse, Kriyas Yamsuf, accepting the Torah on Har Sinai, and very shortly thereafter, the Jewish nation is brought into our land. And again, everyone knew and everyone understood. Miracles of incredible proportions. And the greatest nations, most powerful, occupied that area, wiped out. The Jewish nation took over, and Eretz Yisrael became ours. And for a while, things were good. For a while, we served Hashem properly. For a while, we did what we were supposed to do. But it wasn't that long until Vodazara became much more popular. We can't relate to it now. We don't understand what it means to have a desire, to have a huge need to serve some idol. They did. And it wasn't that long until people started going the wrong way. And Hashem sent kings. Let there be a time of malachim. That'll save them. And in the beginning, it was pretty good. Shaul Melach. Made a mistake, okay. And David Melech, glory days. His son Shlomo builds the base of Mikdash, and the Jewish nation rises to a level of incredible holiness. And we stayed there for a while. But again, not for that long. And it wasn't long thereafter that we began again serving idols, and it began as a nation, we began heading the wrong way. And Hashem sent Novi after Novi. A Navi, a prophet, is not a rabbi giving a lecture. A Navi is a direct messenger of Hashem with a direct message. This is what Hashem says. 
And Hashem sent Novi after Novi, but it didn't do much good. As a rule, the Nevi'im were not well accepted. <clears throat> Certainly in those times, the Nevi'im were mocked, scorned. And as a matter of fact, Yecheskel is called Yecheskel ben Buzi, son of embarrassment, because Yecheskel, the great holy Novi Hashem, was booshed out. They embarrassed him, they mocked him. Zechariah was killed in the base of Mikdash on Shabbos, on Yom Kippur, in the Ezra's Kohen, and murdered 130 years before the base of Mikdash was destroyed. And his blood boiled there for 130 years. And Hashem sent sign after sign, message after message, to no avail. Yirmiyah was sent as a Novi 40 years before the Churban. Most of Megillus Eicha was written as a prophecy of what will be. Eicha Yashva Badad, how did that city sit there, mourning, bereft? That was written years and years before Nebuchadnezzar entered Yerushalayim. But it was clear that no one was listening. Yirmiyah was put into prison, mocked, embarrassed, and his word certainly wasn't accepted. And at a certain point, it became clear that this was not going the right way. And the Medrash tells us that 18 years before the Churban, a baskol came out in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. And the baskol said as follows, Av de Bisha, wicked slave, Zilchar of Beisei Demarach, go destroy the house of God. Go destroy the base of Migdash. The Benoi Loshomale, his children are not listening to him. But that Baskol, a heavenly voice, didn't come out one time. Day after day after day for 18 years. For 18 years on a daily basis, Nebuchadnezzar heard this heavenly voice telling him, lowly slave, destroy the base of Migdash. Lowly slave, do it. And believe me, Nebuchadnezzar would have loved to have done it. No friend of the Jews. But here was the problem. He was a grandson of Sancherev. And he had been there when Sancherev's huge army in mass were wiped out in one night. Killed. Man. Every single soldier. And says Nebuchadnezzar, I'm afraid, little boy, I know what God is going to do. He's going to wash his hands on me. I'm not doing it. And he didn't move. For 18 years he stood there, and for 18 years he didn't listen to the Bosco. But he kept gnawing at him, gnawing at him, gnawing at him. So he began divinations. He tried different things. He shot arrows. In one place he marked Yerushalayim, another part he marked Antiochus, other part he marked Rome. Each time he shot the arrows, they landed in Yerushalayim. None in Rome, none in Antiochus, the city-state of the Greeks. Each time it landed in Yerushalayim. He planted seeds. He marked one plot Yerushalayim, one plot Rome, one part Antioch. And again, none grew except the ones that were marked Yerushalayim. And the Medrash tells us that he did 49 discrete divinations. 49 different proofs that it was the will of God to destroy the base of Migdash. Finally he had it. And finally said, I get it, I'm part of the game. 
But even at that point, Nebuchadnezzar was still afraid. And he didn't dare go himself. He sent Nebuchadnezzar, Sar HaTabachim, the head butcher, one of his generals, Nebuchadnezzar, and he sends Nebuchadnezzar to attack Yerushalayim. And Nebuchadnezzar surrounds Yerushalayim. They laid siege to the city, and for three and a half years, no food went in, no food came out, no people came in or out, but Nebuchadnezzar couldn't enter the city. The Chomos Yerushalayim were powerful, and he couldn't get in. They tried, they tried, and Nebuchadnezzar was about to give up. He was about to give up because he realized it's not going to happen, it's not going to work. And then for some reason, a strange thought came to him. Let me measure the wall. Let me measure the height. And he measures the height of the wall. And he realizes that, that it's shorter than it was yesterday. And the next day he measures, and he realizes it's shorter still. Day after day, the walls were literally shrinking into the ground, level after level after level, until the walls were no longer walls. They were quite penetrable. He and his soldiers attacked and as he's about to enter the base of Mikdash, Hashem says these words, Kozman Sha'ani Besocho. The Medrash says, As long as I am in the base of Mikdash, Ein Umos Olim Nogimbo, the Gentile nations can't touch it. Achvashes Ein, I'm going to close my eyes, says Hashem. I'm going to take a Shfua, I won't be involved in anything that happens in the base of Mikdash until it's the Kates. The Medrash tells us that's what happens. Hashem takes a shvua, swears, whatever that means, and he says, I will not have anything to do with the base of Migdash. The Osa Shah, at that moment, Hashem left. And in that moment, it was Radan and his soldiers were able to enter the base of Migdash and burn it. And the Medrash continues. The Medrash Eicha continues and says, Amar HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Hashem says, Shuv Ainli Moshev Ba'aretz. I have no place left in the land. I have no place to stay. I'm going to take away my presence from the land, and I'm going to go up to my original place. And if it could be Hashem left, the lights were extinguished, and no longer was the Shekhinah's presence felt, no longer was there a brilliant light coming from Yerushalayim, no longer could you feel the holiness, and the world was changed. Oh, obviously Hashem is still involved in every facet of creation, and obviously Hashem still keeps every particle in existence, but the presence of Hashem was no longer something you could feel, now hidden, and Hashem left if it could be, and went up. But then the Medrash continues, Bosa Shah at that point, Hashem begins crying. If it could be, Hashem begins crying and He says, Oili, woe to me, ma'asisi. What have I done? I put my presence below Bishul Yisrael for my nation Yisrael. And now that they've sinned, now I've gone back to my original place. And there are ten separate categories of malachim one higher than the other, one greater than the other, and the highest, highest category of Malachim are the Malachi Asharis, and is one Malach who is considered the highest of them, the one who's allowed to serve Hashem directly, 
And at that moment, Matatron, that Malach, sees Hashem's crying, and he falls on his face, the Amal of and he says to Hashem, Ribbon Shalom, Ani Evchel, let me cry, you don't cry, I'll cry for you. Amalo, Hashem says back to him, if you do not allow me, live close to you, do not allow me to cry now. I'm going to go to a place. I'll go to a place where you have no permission to go over Let me cry. At which point, Medrash tells us, Hashem calls out to the entire group of ministering angels and says to them, Let us go. Let us go, Venira Bebesi. Let us go see my house, the base of Megdish. Ma'asu Oivimbo. Let us go see what our enemies have done in it. Says Medrish Miyad immediately. Halacha Kadibarhu Hashem. Malachi Ashares, together with the ministering angels. The Yirmiya Lafanov, Yirmiya Hanavi led the way. He was the leader of the generation. He was the link between Shamayim and Aretz, between heaven and earth. And it was his job to lead. This group. It came in Shirah, Kadesh Baruchas, Beis Mikdash, and when Hashem saw the Beis Mikdash, Ammar, Hashem said, Bevadai Zehu Beisi. Certainly that is my house. Zehu Menuchasi, that is my resting place. And again, the Medjus says, Bosashai, Kadesh Baruchu, Bocha. At that moment, Hashem again is crying, Vaomer, Oili al Beisi, woe to my house. Benai, my children, Heichanatem. Kohanim, my Kohanim, Heichanatem. Oavai, Heichanatem. Ma'aselachem. Says Hashem, what can I do? Hisreisi b'chem, I warned you. V'lochazar t'machuvah, you didn't come back. I warned you, I warned you. Navi after Navi, warning after warning, you didn't come back. What could I do? And then Hashem says to Yirmiya, would you like to know what my pain is like? A man had one son, and he merited taking that son to his wedding. And in the chuppah, his one son dies. The pain is unimaginable, says HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that is me. I'm just like that man, my one nation, the Klai Yisrael, are no longer there, my base of Mikdash is no longer there. Ein lecha ka'ev, Yirmiya, what's wrong with you? You don't have any feeling. Lo And Hashem says to Yirmiya, you're stone-hearted. What's wrong with you? Why aren't you begging? Why aren't you beseeching? Why aren't you begging me to change, to stop, to do something? You're cold-hearted. Go call up Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Moshe. Call them up from their kever, from their graves. Shehem yodim livchos, because they know how to cry. Yirmiya, you don't know how to cry. You have no emotions. You don't understand my pain. Go call the others, they know my pain. And the Medrash tells us that that's what Yirmiya does. He calls up Moshe Rabbeinu, calls up Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, all the others, all the imos, and each one stands in front of Hashem. Each one crying each one begging, each one besieging, please Hashem, please, please have mercy, have Rachmanis. And nothing worked. Rachel Imenu, the last Kavsa, she jumps forward and something that she said changed 
And Yad Nisgalgal Racham of immediately Hashem's Racham was awakened, and Hashem said, Bishvilech Rachel, in your merit, and the Jewish people will come back. Not now, but they will come back. There will be a time. And that's how the Medrash describes for us what was happening during the Churban Bias. And I'd like to ask what I consider an obvious question on this Medrash. It is very difficult to imagine a man more kindly, more merciful, more loving than Yirmiya Hanavi. A man who's so dedicated to his people that for 40 years, for 40 years he prophesizes, he begs, he tells the people, please come back, Hashem will accept you. But he's not accepted, he's mocked, he's scorned, he's locked up, he's threatened. And still he leads, still he begs, still he continues. And if you'd like to understand how merciful and how kindly Yirmi is, I'll share with you one observation. When Nebuchadnezzar sent Nebuchadnezzar, the head butcher, Nebuchadnezzar said to him, there is a man there, the leader of the Jewish people, Yirmiya, and with the people, do what you want. Kill them, torture them, I don't care. But make sure you do not touch a hair on Yirmiya's head. But more than that, it is your job, your duty to make sure that he's safe. And when Nebuchadnezzar entered Yerushalayim, he told Yirmiya that he is a safe man, he will not be touched, and he told everyone involved, Yirmiya is not to be touched. Not long thereafter, the Medrash tells us that Nebuchadnezzar is going amongst a group of captured slaves who are wearing chains on their neck. And in this group, he sees Yirmiya. He says, what are you doing here? I told you, you're not supposed to be a slave. You're a free man. He takes him out. A little while later, Nebuchadnezzar is going somewhere else. He sees some old men, again, being led away into slave boats. And again sees Jeremy amongst them. And again he frees him. Get out of here, I told you. No one's allowed to touch you. A third time and a fourth time. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar says to Yirmiya, there's one of three things that's going on here. Either you're a Navi Sheker, you're a false prophet, or you're a masochist, or you're a wicked person. Either you're a Navi Sheker, you're a false Navi, and all those words you said for 40 years, you finally see... And happened, but it wasn't really told to you by Hashem, and you're so shocked that you're so broken. That's why you're doing this? Or you just don't care about pain? Or maybe you know that if I don't bring you back alive, my head is on the chopping blocks, and Nebuchadnezzar will kill me. Maybe that's the pshat. And Rav Desla asked the obvious question. Why can't it just be that Yirmiya felt so terrible? Why can't it just be that he felt his people's pain that he wanted to be with them in their worst moment? And explains Rav Dessel, because don't you understand? For 40 years he said it's going to happen. For 40 years he prophesied. For 40 years he warned, and now it happened. Any normal human being would have been so disgusted. I told you so. I warned you. Nebuchadnezzar could not believe that a human being could possibly care so much and then after warning and warning, and after suffering such abuse, he could actually feel such pain that he puts himself into the captive's line. And the Medrash tells us that Nebuchadnezzar was amazed, aghast, by the mercy that Yirmiya had. And Yirmiya went amongst the people. 
and he saw bloody trails and he began picking up the fingers and the limbs and he said, Benai, Benai, my sons, my sons, I warned you, I warned you and he begins crying and crying. So here's the question. How could Hashem accuse Yirmiya of being cold-hearted? How could Hashem say, you don't know how to cry. You're cold-hearted. Call the others. Avram, Yitzhak, they know how to cry. You don't know how to cry. How could Hashem say that about a man who's such a tzaddik, such a pure heart? How can you say those words? And I think if we focus on what this medrash is sharing with us, I think we'll understand a very great principle. And to help understand this, let me share with you an observation. About 20 years ago, I heard about what I called a fairy tale wedding. What happened was, there was a young fellow in yeshiva, and he was engaged to marry a young woman, and it turned out that this young man's father was ill, and as it was getting closer and closer to the wedding, it became very clear that this young man's father wasn't going to make it. He's in the hospital, and the doctors tell him, you don't have very long to go. So the couple decide to get married in the hospital room. It was about a week before they were really to get married, but they realized likely the father wouldn't be there. So the chassan, the kala, small group of people gathered in this man's hospital room, and they got married there. Maybe a week later or so was the actual wedding, but the actual wedding really was held in the man's hospital room shortly thereafter the man died. When I heard it, it was beautiful. What a, I mean, what a way to start a family, to give your father one last piece of nachas, to see his father, to, to, to share that with the father in the last moments. To me, it was like a beautiful, beautiful story. Twenty years later, I met the Kala. And to her, apparently, it wasn't such a beautiful story. She said to me, for 20 years, I've harbored resentment against my mother-in-law. For 20 years, I cannot forgive her. Because she manipulated me. She took away my, my one day. A kala waits, a girl waits for that day of a chuppah, and waits her whole life. And my mother-in-law took it away from me, and I just felt she didn't respect me. She didn't care. And for almost 20 years, this woman said to me, she couldn't be with her mother-in-law. When the mother-in-law would come in the house, she'd be like, cringe. Finally, after 18, 19 years, she went to a landmark seminar, and they explained to her that there are two things. There are the facts, and then there's the story. The facts are, you got married in the hospital room. Those are the facts. The story that you spun afterwards was that your mother-in-law didn't respect you, she manipulated you into it, it shouldn't have been, it was the wrong thing. And the problem is that that story began playing in your brain like a tape over and over and over. And the story took on such power and such emotion that any time you saw your mother-in-law, you no longer saw the facts, you no longer saw what happened, but that story that you created came back very clearly to you. And what they explained to her was that there was a fact and then there's the story, but the interpretation is what's up to you, and that interpretation you, without even realize, is something you did, and then that story took on a life of its own, and you said it again and again, 
But here's the point. Who is right? Was my version of what happened right? Was it a fairy tale, an opportunity to do a last chesed? Or was it something being stolen from a kala? And the answer is it was both, it was neither. It was a very simple reality. The wedding happened in the hospital. And anything else after that is interpretation. And that interpretation becomes a story and becomes spun. To me, it was a fairy tale that remained in my mind as a beautiful story for years and years. To this woman, the story of it was she was manipulated into it, but that was a story that was based on her interpretation. And we human beings do this all the time. We take facts, we say pshat, we interpret them, and we create stories, and then the stories become real. The stories take on a life of their own till the facts are forgotten long ago. And the facts aren't even relevant. But the story takes on such a power, such a life, that it becomes the reality, and the story becomes fact, and the facts are whatever, because the story is there. And besides this being a great principle for interpersonal relationships, I believe that this is a major concept when it comes to our relating to our Creator. You see, whenever we human beings begin to think about Hashem, invariably we have certain stories that we spin. We have a certain persona that we create about Hashem, a certain image. Hashem is mean, Hashem is indicative, Hashem is kind, Hashem is good. We create a sort of persona, and that persona takes on a life of its own. And at a certain point when you grow up, it's time to really cut through the lie. You see, any persona is a human attribute. Anthropomorphism means attributing human dimensions to non-human entities. Hashem is not a human being. Hashem doesn't have a personality as we know it. Hashem acts in certain ways with the world, but I guarantee that your version of Hashem, your understanding of Hashem, was long ago skewed by certain events, certain things that happened. You spun a story out of it and created a persona, a version, and this is what Hashem is. And at a certain point, you have to... cut through and say, wait a minute, I'd like to really understand Hashem as much as I can. And one of the things I'd like to do is I'd like to introduce you. I'd like to introduce you to your Creator, as in, hello, this is Hashem. And to do that, I'll share with you an experience that I had that I found very eye-opening. I often speak about Amuna and Mitochan. I was once speaking in an out-of-town community, and I mentioned that the third level of Amuna is knowing that Hashem knows my thoughts as I'm thinking them. That Hashem reads through me like a book. Hashem knows my thoughts as I'm thinking them. I don't have to speak out my words for Hashem to hear them. Hashem knows my thoughts as I'm thinking them. That's the third level of Amunah. In any case, I finished the entire entire shmuz. When I was done, people had questions, comments, and I noticed a woman was very troubled, and she came over to me with a very pained look in her eye, and she said, that's terrible. What you said is terrible. It's, Hashem knows my thoughts. That's horrible. <clears throat> I didn't know what to make of this, but her husband was there. And her husband explained. She <clears throat> was a balashchuva. And apparently <clears throat> her father was an abusive personality. 
And the thought that someone is so close, that someone actually, like Hashem is in her inner, inner world, that Hashem knows her thoughts, is so threatening, she's so vulnerable, she, she can't deal with that. And I said, Madam, I understand what you're saying. But I'd like to share with you what you're doing. You're taking human attributes and attributing it to Hashem. You're assuming that Hashem is like us, just bigger. So if Hashem is merciful, Hashem is more merciful. If Hashem is kindly, Hashem is more kindly. But you're assuming that Hashem is just like us. And I said, that's totally, totally sheker. I said, I'll ask you three questions, and I think these three questions will help open up this great dilemma. Question number one. Before you were created, what did you do to make it worthy that Hashem should create you, right? Before you existed, before you were in this world, what great thing did you do that Hashem said, oh my God, this person is so great, so wonderful that it's worthy for me to create them. Now, the answer is nothing. <laughs> because before you were created, you weren't created. And before you were created, you didn't exist. And I said that's the first concept a human being has to deal with. There is nothing that I did that made it worthy for Hashem to create me. And you know why Hashem made me? Not because Hashem owes me anything. Not because Hashem has any interest in this. Because Hashem is the mative, the giver. Hashem wants to benefit others. Hashem wants to give. And there's no benefit whatsoever in this relationship for Hashem. Hashem created me not because I'm good or bad or indifferent. But Hashem created me for one reason and one reason only. To share of His good with me. But I said, Madam, there are two more questions that are equally important. Question number two is, what could you do to get Hashem angry? Right? Let's say you decide, that's it, I've had it. Hashem, we're done. It's toast. I am going to do something to make you so angry. And you make up to do the worst thing you could imagine. What could you do to make Hashem angry? And I said, with all due respect, the answer is nothing. Why? Because, you know, first of all, to be honest with you, you're just not that important. If you imagine a hundred billion galaxies, each galaxy <clears throat> containing a hundred billion stars. Imagine 13 billion light years of space. And imagine you climb down, climb down, climb down, climb down, climb down, climb to this tiny, t- oh, there it is, the earth, the earth, the earth. Oh, yeah, yeah, tiny, tiny little dot. And on the earth are seven and a half billion people. Hashem is the maintainer, creator and maintainer of all the physicality across the entire cosmos. And you're but one of seven and a half billion people on but one planet in Hashem's vast, huge world. You're not an equal to Hashem. You're not like, come on, I'll do something to get you angry. And you have to realize that there's nothing that you can do to make Hashem angry. Because at the end of the day, that's not the reality. Does Hashem act with anger? Yes. And there are many times when the Torah uses such expressions, Becharon Af, Bechema. And there are many times when Hashem acts in certain manners, but that's for our good, for our benefit. And there is a Midas Adin. Hashem created the world with a certain balance and a certain justice. And if you cross the line, you're going to hear, and there are going to be consequences. And those consequences could be mighty frightening. But the idea of getting Hashem angry is philosophically untenable. Hashem is so much bigger and so much larger, but more than that, anger is a human trait. 
Anger is a midah that you and I are limited by. Hashem has no limitations, no things that control him. I lost my temper. You made me do that. Those are human tendencies. They don't apply to Hashem. And I said, Madam, there's a third question. Once you realize that I didn't do anything to be worthy of being created, but rather Hashem did it for one purpose, because Hashem's a native, and you realize there's nothing you could do to get Hashem angry, I said, I have a third question. And that third question is, how much patience does Hashem have? Right? I was a high school rabbi for many years. That job requires a lot of patience. So does Hashem have a little bit of patience, a lot, of, a lot, a lot of patience? How much patience does Hashem have? And I said again, the answer is not a little, not a lot, not gargantuan. Patience is a human virtue, a human limitation. I have just so much patience, and then you've gone over my line. That doesn't apply to Hashem. Limitless, <clears throat> boundless, Hashem doesn't get angry, Hashem doesn't lose patience. And I said, once you understand that, now you're beginning to understand your relationship to Hashem. Your relationship to Hashem is, Hashem is the mative, the giver. And the only reason why Hashem created the entire cosmos is for one reason, to share of His good with you. And there's nothing you can do to get Hashem angry. And nothing you're going to do that makes Hashem lose patience. Are there judgments? Oh yeah. Are there punishments? You better believe it. And if you step out of line, there are going to be things that happen. But not because Hashem is angry, but because Hashem created the world that way, runs the world that way. And when you begin to understand that, you begin to understand that Hashem is not like a human being, a little bit bigger, and that Hashem is boundless, limitless. And the midah with which Hashem created the world was a tava goodness. And if you'd like to see an illustration of that, take a man like Yermia, the most kindly, giving, loving human being you could ever imagine. And in this moment in time, Hashem says to him, you're cold-hearted, steel-hearted. How could you not cry with me? How can you not feel my pain? Why? Because as great as Yermia was, he was limited by a body. As much pain as he could feel, he was still human. And he had warned them, and he had told them, and he, they knew it was coming, and they had it coming to him. And as much as he felt their pain, he couldn't feel it as much. Hashem says, call the Avos. They're no longer limited by physicality. Their Midas have expanded. And they're no longer locked into a body, and they can feel my pain. Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Moshe, Rabbeinu, they come and they're crying. Their tears were powerful, were real. And if you'd like to see just an illustration, but a minuscule illustration of the love that Hashem has for His people, just read this Medrash. Because as much as Yirmiya suffered, and as much embarrassment as he had to go through, I'd like to share with you, Hashem went through a lot more. It wasn't Yirmiya they were rebelling against, it was God. It wasn't Yirmiya who created the world, it's Hashem. And it wasn't Yermia who was suffering the real abuse. It was Hashem, generation after generation, warning after warning, Navi after Navi. And finally Hashem says, I have no choice. I have to destroy the base of Mikdash. If I don't do that, I have to destroy the people. They've gone so bad. They've gone so south that if I don't destroy the edifice, I have to destroy the nation. Becharon Af, with the meter of anger, Hashem spilled out that anger on the Eitzim and Avonim, on the sticks, on the stones. And the gullus that we currently live in 
is a manifest, manifestation of that. But you have to understand, as much as it hurts us, as much as it pains us, it pains Hashem even more, as much as we suffer, and as much as we feel our plight, Hashem feels it much more. But it's not just our plight. You see, it's 2,000 years. And we read about the Holocaust like it's ancient history. The Crusades, forget about it. Spanish Inquisition, it's a storybook. But Hashem lived it, lives it, experiences it. And if you want to know the pain that Hashem has, it's indescribable beyond human comprehension. Because take the 2,000 years of suffering and pain and torture and know that Hashem feels it more intensely, more acutely than any human being ever can. And if it could be the Shekhinah has tsar, that's unimaginable. Do you know how the Torah explains a famous question? Seven times a day we answer Kaddish. Hashem, may your great name, may your great name be increased. May we see Mashiach. May your Shekhinah become present as it always was. What a beautiful tefillah. We're asking for things to change. Hashem to return to glory, for the world to change. Ask the Torah, so why do we say in Aramaic? Why are we hiding behind some foreign language? Why are we masking it? And explains the Torah very simply. Because the Malachim here, Tfilah. And if we said in the Hebrew, they would understand it. But Aramaic, for whatever which reason, they're not privy to, and that language they don't understand. But you'll ask, what's the problem? A beautiful tefillah. May the great name of Hashem be blessed. Do you know what the problem is? Because the Gemara tells us that whenever a Jewish man enters a shul and together with the minion he says those words, Hashem says, woe to the father. Woe to the father who had to exile his son. Woe to the son who had to be exiled. I yearn for those days. I wish they could be, but they're not. And if it could be, it causes the Shekhinah Sar. And the preacher explains very clearly, the Malachim would be Makatrig. They would say, you low lives, how dare you cause Hashem Tsar again? How dare you increase his pain? How dare you repeat those words? Because while we don't feel the gullus, well, we have to review it and think about it when we sit on the floor, to Hashem, it's real. And while we have to somehow think about what it means to be a Jew in exile for 2,000 years, Hashem doesn't have to think about it. And Kaddish is hidden, because if Malachim knew the tsar, the pain that we cause Hashem, when we say those words, they would rebel. And if you'd like to understand life, I believe you have to begin reading Chazal, and understanding the world the way Chazal explained. Many questions, many questions on the Gullah. Hashem, why? Why the Jews? Why so long? Why, why, why? Any question you ask, any question you ask, where does it come from? The Belzerov was once, someone once came to him and said, how could Hashem have done this? The Holocaust, how could it be? How could Hashem do it? Belzerov said, tell me something. Why are you asking that question? Do you have someone who died? No. Mother, father, no. Brother, no. So why are you asking? Why am I asking? Rachmanis. Rachmanis. How could Hashem let it happen? Says the Belzerov to this Jew. Let me ask you something. 
Who gave you that sense? Who created that sense within you of Rachmanis? Who created that sense of mercy? <clears throat> Any midah that you have was implanted in you by your Creator, and it's not when ten thousand, ten thousands of what Hashem feels. And the Chovaz Lovavaz explains to us, if you take the most kindly, <clears throat> merciful, giving human being you could ever imagine, take Avram Avinu, a pure heart, unbridled love, Take that love and multiply it 10,000, 10,000, 10,000 times. You only begin to get an inkling for the love that Hashem feels for every one of His creations. And when Hashem created the world, it was for one reason, to give to us, to share. And Hashem created a beautiful world. And His Amskula, His one precious nation, He gave a land, the most beautiful land to and it's not the land they're in now. And the life that they lead is not the life that they're supposed to be leading. And if you'd like to know the tragedy, oh yes, it's our pain. Oh yes, it's the pain of the Jewish people. But if you'd like to fundamentally understand life, and certainly if you'd like to fundamentally understand Hashem, you have to understand the real tragedy is the pain that Hashem has. And the Shekhinah wants to share, wants to bring us back, wants to but cannot, because it's not yet there. What's the reason? I don't know. Way above my pay scale, with all the respect, above yours as well. But that's the concept. The concept is that Hashem is the native, Hashem is the giver. And Hashem created the whole world for one reason, only to give. And what we suffer through are not things that Hashem does with callousness, done with tremendous love. And I've often said it, and it bears repeating, if a person wants to come to any level of bitachon, there are two concepts that to firmly embrace. Number one, Hashem loves me more than I love me. As much as I want my good, as much as I want my betterment, as much as I want the best for me, Hashem wants it even more. As much as I love me, Hashem loves me even more explains the Chavaz of Avos. That's the first concept that a person has to have if they want to learn to have a relationship with Hashem and learn to trust Hashem. But there's a second concept that's even more difficult. And that second concept is that Hashem knows better than I what's for my best. Why do we need to be in this exile for 2,000 years, bloodshed and tortures, crusades and inquisitions? What do we need it for? And you and I aren't going to know the answer. But I can tell you one thing, Hashem does. And I can tell you something that it's for the best. Why exactly? I don't know. <clears throat> for the people there, the people who grow, people who sustain, who withstand, who become close to Hashem. When we leave this earth, when my body's put in the ground, I leave, it'll become clear, eminently clear. Right now, I don't know. But I do know this. Whatever pain I feel, Hashem feels it even more. And therefore, the second conclusion that a Jew has to embrace and understand is, as much as I know what's for my best, Hashem knows it just a little bit more. And for whatever the reason, this is what we need. This is where we need to be, and this is what Hashem wants. We sit on the floor in Tisha B'Av, and we're supposed to awaken ourselves to the horrific horrible state of our existence. Our existence today, our existence years ago, the history of the Jews. And we're supposed to understand what we did to contribute to this.
And it sure isn't because Hashem is mean or cruel. And it isn't because Hashem doesn't have enough money to fly us all on El Al back to Israel. But there's something that we got wrong. And our job is to fix that. Our job is to change. But if you'd like to understand the real story, the real story is based on understanding the nature of the Jewish people. A unique people, a people of history, a people that the entire cosmos is dependent on. And when we go up, we reach the stars. When we go down, it's a rough ride down. And if it could be the pain that Hashem feels is well beyond our understanding. When Hashem says to Yirmiya, Yirmiya, how could you sit there? How can you not beg, beseech? How can you not implore? Yes, Yirmiya was a merciful man. Yes, he had love for the Jewish nation. But it wasn't anywhere near the level of Hashem's love. And Hashem says, call the Avos. They're no longer confined by limitations of human beings. They can feel my pain. And the Avos came and the Medrash tells us, but also Shah says the Medrash, if it could be said, Hashem and the others went from Shire to Shire in the base of Migdash, crying, 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 bitter, bitter tears. And when you read Chazal after Chazal that explained to us what really happened, you realize that our understanding of Hashem, our version of Hashem is greatly skewed. Maybe we were younger, something happened or didn't happen, and we created a story from it. I have a version of Hashem. Hashem is very forgiving, very kindly, very mean. Very Whatever version that you have, I guarantee it's based on an interpretation, based on a story you spun out, and at a certain point you have to say, okay, I get it, it's time for me to meet my Creator. And when it's time for you to meet your Creator, the first thing you have to ask yourself is, why does Hashem make me? What am I doing here? And that question before I was created, and what did I do to make it worthy for Hashem to create me? The answer is nothing. Because before I was created, I didn't exist. And then I understand my relationship to my Creator. Not because I'm good, not because I'm worthy, not because I have greatness. Hashem created me for one reason and one reason only, because Hashem wants to share His good with me. Hashem created the whole world for that purpose. And likely at a certain point you realize that Hashem has gotten angry with me. Surely Hashem is fed up with me. And then you realize that there's nothing I can do to get Hashem angry. Again, don't buck the system. Because Hashem set up the world in a way that we're going to excel. And Hashem set up the world in a way that we're not going to have such an easy time squandering our opportunity of growth. And there are going to be many, many messengers that Hashem is going to send, many patches along the way. Not because Hashem's angry, not because He's mad, vengeful, but because it's what we need. And it's what we need to direct us, to guide us. And if you'd like to understand the gullus, that's, that's what we're doing here. And the third question is, how much patience does Hashem have? And the answer is, not a little bit, not a lot, but infinite amount. And in plain, simple language, what that means is Hashem is the native waiting and waiting for one thing, for us to get it, for us to do tshuva, for us to correct what we've done wrong, hopefully imminently, hopefully immediately, and if not, then hopefully Hashem will just bring us out because it's the kates already. But when you read the pain of the Shekhinah and you understand it, you have a very different version of what's happening. And I want to close with one last thought. The Sefer Haredim, which is a liquid of Rishonim, 
and he's a tremendous person. He brings down that he was in a Chabura, they used to cry. And he apparently used to speak about Rav Shimon Bar Yochai. And in one group, they were crying about the Beis Migdash, and they were late at night, and he read to the group Rav Shimon Bar Yochai's words. He says in the Tikkunim Tikkun Vav, says Rav Shimon Bar Yochai to his people, to his people of his time, to his people who were his Chabura, Ve'ilanon l'b'nei anasha, Woe be to man. Because Hashem is locked up in prison with you. And we know, says Rishim Bar one who's locked up in prison can't free himself. The freedom of Hashem is based on one thing, our tshuva. And then Rishim Bar goes on to say, Hashem looks this way, look that way. Who's going to do it? Who's going to change it? Who's going to bring? Who's going to bring Mashiach? When are you going to do it? Who? Where? And if you think about that concept, that as much as we want out, as much as we want this exile to end, Hashem wants it far more, and Hashem waits, but more than that, Hashem is locked up. If it could be, Hashem can't do what He wants to do. Hashem created a world with such beauty, because Hashem is the mate of it. Hashem wants us to enjoy life. Hashem wants us to wake up in the morning with a wow, a sense of energy, a zeal, to enjoy the sights, the flavor of zero. It's not the reason we're here. But this world, this short corridor, was created with such luxuries and such pleasures. Because Hashem is the mate and Hashem wants only good. And if it could be, Hashem's hands are tied. And the suffering that we suffer is not because Hashem can't do for us, because the way Hashem created this system, it's up to us. And Hashem sits there waiting, He too <coughs> imprisoned with us, He wanting to give, He feeling more pain than we, and it's only up to us. And Hashem grant us that this be the last Tisha B'Av. Hashem grant us that we wake up and understand what Hashem wants from us.